Welcome back to the Paranorm Girl podcast. I am your host, Kristen. I am exceedingly excited to bring you today's episode. Christopher Balzano is a teacher and paranormal researcher. He specializes in haunted folklore and has recently published a book that dives very deeply into the haunted legends and spooky lore of a very active area in Florida, the Ocala Forest. The book is titled Haunted Ocala National Forest, and we get into some of the discoveries and stories he's picked up during his research and so much more. He's truly a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the paranormal, and I know you guys are really going to like all that we get into today. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Balzano. All right, so I have a very special guest on the show today. Chris Balzano is a paranormal researcher, haunted folklore specialist, podcaster, teacher, author of many books on different paranormal subjects and areas. Um, I picked up a copy of his most recent book, Haunted Ocala National Forest. It was fantastic, and uh, we'll be getting into that because there is a lot to learn uh, about the Ocala and its spooky lore. Chris, welcome to the show. How the heck are you? Excellent. Thank you very much for having you. I know we joked offline about me correcting anything from my bio and already I have to correct something. Yeah. Oh, go for um, it, please. I like, I like to think of myself as a reformed paranormal investigator. Ah. Um, I am now what is known as a legend tripper. So, okay. Okay. <laughs> We're getting right well, get, into and, it. And the only reason why I say it is because I think it's important uh, that my perspective on the paranormal has dramatically changed over the um, you know, nearly, oh, it's, I think it's like 25 years uh, that I've been doing this stuff. And so it, it kind of molded uh, both of my most recent books about Florida. So it's a really cool thing to, to, to clarify at the beginning. And it makes me sound really snooty. So people get like a... <laughs> I'm reformed. Mm. <laughs> I'm a reformed paranormal <laughs> investigator. Yes. Well, it's... Oh, boy. So uh, there's a couple of questions I already have for you. Uh, I'm going to ask you about legend tripping. Because yeah. that is a new concept to, to me that just I, I just uh, I think learned about on, on your show, actually, your podcast. Uh, but you are indeed one busy dude. Um, you've got you've got a, a lengthy list of, of accomplishments in the paranormal field, which shouldn't come as any surprise as you have been at it for so long. Um, I, I would uh, be interested to hear just how this journey all began for you and mm. how it ultimately led you to, you know, specializing in haunted folklore and becoming a reformed paranormal <laughs> investigator. Um, how did I become reformed? Um, <laughs> some would say that I'm not reformed at all. Uh, for me, you know, it all started just growing up. You know, I, I always say I come from the generation, the first generation that went to the drive-in theater with their parents where you were watching something like Herbie Goes Bananas. And then after that, it was The Exorcist. Ooh. And parents thought that we were asleep, but we weren't asleep in the back watching those. And you know, <laughs> from the first generation of, of kids growing up having HBO and your parents went to bed and you snuck downstairs and all of a sudden you were watching some of the best horror movies uh, of all time after midnight with the swears and the nudity and all that stuff like and all the things that kind of draws to horror but you're like seven eight years old having no idea no context for it so you're really just like absorbing all of this and the raw emotion of it um and then i was rather than being a latchkey kid i was a kid who was left at the library 
I had Ooh. to walk. I feel like really old saying this. I had, in my day, I had to walk a mile to the library. <laughs> I, I did it for my for my elementary school. I used to have to walk a mile to the library, and then uh, stay at the library for two or three hours waiting for my mom to get out of work to pick me up. Mm-hmm. And I was just consuming books, and the books that I was consuming were not only you know, uh, supernatural books and, and books on the unknown, but also Greek mythology and folklore, everything from Paul Bunyan to Zeus. And, and I just soaked it all up like a sponge and it just stayed in my head. Like the one thing I can say about myself, we can talk about whether or not I'm a good writer, but the, <laughs> the idea that I remember things and make connections. So when I went off to college at Boston at Emerson, I was at the Charles Gate Hotel, which is one of the most haunted buildings in Boston. And people were telling me all the time about things that were happening to them. So already I was, I was a storyteller, but I was getting these stories and I would ask the people, well, why, why do you think that happened? And they would say, oh, the story I heard is, you know, uh, one of the students committed suicide there. And so now every year on the anniversary, and I was like, wait a minute, I've heard that story. I heard that story in North Dakota Mm -hmm. about this thing. Cause I just consumed so much ghost lore and, and folklore. And so I started to think that, you know, there is this crossroads, this intersection between hauntings, which may or may not be true, and the stories we tell about them, uh, and the stories we develop about them, and the ones we fall back on to explain the things that are unexplained. And so I was one of the first people, once again, old man, one of the first people to have a website dedicated to ghost stories and hauntings of a particular area, right? Like they're very general. Mm. One of my, the precursors is like, you know, the um, uh, the Warren's old website, which was about New England, but there was no Massachusetts. Yeah. And so I set up my first Massachusetts website. And then all of a sudden people were, because I was one of the only ones out there, people were hitting me up with more stories and more hauntings. So I had to become, you know, more read on local things. And then I had to go out there and experience them. Uh, and that just naturally led to becoming an investigator. And so I spent, you know, a, a decade and a half being an investigator, investigating, you know, personal homes, but then all these classic places. And then I eventually kind of found myself like empty. You know, I, I was doing the, the news for Ghost Village, mm-hmm. um, which if, if people don't know, because it seems to not be nearly as popular as it used to be, but it used to be the paranormal website, Jeff Belanger's site. It was like where everyone went. And then I was also doing for Spooky South Coast, which is a radio show out of Massachusetts. I was booking guests and doing their social media was was coming alive. And I would I would I realized that I was posting things and no one cared. Mm -hmm. And I kind of fell out of this idea of like, you know what, I don't think I have a place in the paranormal anymore. And so I laid low for a little bit. And then when I came back, my thought process was no one reads a ghost story and no one really gets into this because of an, you know, uh, uh, an EMF spike, right? Or a thermal imaging. So like, right, right. It was a dark and stormy night and the thermal camera did this. Like, yeah, it's yeah. the heart of it, right? And we were losing the heart of it. We were going out there with all this equipment and we weren't using our eyes, you know? And we were measuring temperature, but not noticing the chill going down our spine. And so I fell back to what I was originally doing when I would go out, which is legend tripping, which is you hear about a place And you go and experience it the way that people tell the legend. So rather than trying to gain evidence, you're trying to gain experience. And then along with that, it started to be, once again, that whole crosswords idea I had, but I became consumed with, or I returned to, I should say, 
why is this story being told in this area at this time by those people? And so in telling the ghost story, the research that I do and how deep I go into it tells about the community itself, right? It tells about what the people think, what the people are scared of. You know, uh, it, you can't tell the ghost story without telling where that place comes from and where it is now. Like the Ocals or the, the haunted National Ocala or Ocala National Forest is a good example of, you have to understand those communities to be able to tell those stories. And so in doing it, you're really becoming not only uh, a storyteller, but also a history teacher and getting into the psychology of things. And that made me uh, more interested. And so that kind of rejuvenated me. And so I've been, I've been this legend tripper uh, for the last almost six years now. And I've, I've kind of finally found what I'm really good at. So did, did you uh, kind of coin that term or was that already? No, 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 not by, no. I mean, it really goes back to, um, goes back to, like, I would probably the thirties and the forties, although it might be more than that. Um, you've, you've read the book. So there's this one story about the uh, Oviedo lights, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this idea about the Oviedo lights was people were coming around. Oviedo is a, is a, um, a town right outside of Orlando and it had these ghost lights. And the story behind these lights, one of the origin stories is a person had committed suicide at the bridge, uh, which connects Oviedo to, 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 to the next town. And he came back from World War II. The woman he loved had gotten married to someone else and he, and he committed suicide by hanging himself from the bridge. And he was the first Oviedo light. And then all of a sudden other people would either join him in the suicide, so it became someplace other veterans were coming or they would, um, people would just die there in car wrecks in the area and they became mm -hmm. the Oviedo lights. Yeah. And so every year there would be more Oviedo lights and they would seem to be dancing in the sky. They would seem to be playing with each other. So this is not, even if swamp gas is really a thing, um, this is not that, this is not, these are not explosions. These are not even temporary lights. There are lights that would have a personality and move and dance and in different colors. And the fun thing used to be, you would go, in carloads of people to go watch the Oviedo lights, right? Yep. Like you would literally say, hey girl, like what you wanna do this Saturday, <laughs> go to the movies or go to the Oviedo lights and you would do it and you were, and so it really became like old school ways of looking at the paranormal, like legend tripping in its basic form is you and the other kids in the area have a spooky house that's down the street and you challenge each other to knock three times because you know the monster's gonna come out. That's what legend tripping is, the awe and that spark of like, you know, that, 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 what are we scared of? And it's crazy and we're challenging each other. And oftentimes it's a rite of passage. So I'm, I, I just kind of borrowed or brought the term back, although other people, you know, use it, uh, you know, Jeff Belanger himself has a book, Picture Yourself Legend Tripping, which is part of, you know, one of the series that I was involved in too. So it's not necessarily a new term. Um, it's just one that I think is a lot more, that I'm a lot more comfortable with it. Okay. Okay. So you brought up the Oviedo lights, the, the mm -hmm. ghost light phenomenon. Um, yeah. there, there's a lot happening in the Akala Force. <laughs> I, I think you are probably the perfect person to write about it because you are able to kind of make these connections and pull things together yeah. so well. Um, I, I wanted to say, and I don't know how to say it correctly, but, but reading this book, it was very reminiscent, like in a nostalgic way of the books that I would pick up as a kid, those yeah. spooky, creepy, paranormal books. So 
I guess what what initially drew you to write specifically about that area, the Ocala? So keeping in mind that I, I was an investigator, so I have that investigator mindset and, and, that, and the pseudoscience of, of uh, ghost, uh, uh, looking at ghosts and paranormal investigating and, and the ideas of why things are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other side, I have this, uh, um, I, I did a lot of research in my early days on the Bridgewater Triangle, which is in Massachusetts. Yeah. And my first book was called uh, Dark Woods, which is about Freetown, Massachusetts, which up until I went to the Ocala was the creepiest place that I have ever been in my life. And when I was writing about dark woods, the idea was it was this place where if you, people don't know the Bridgewater Triangle, anything you can possibly imagine in the paranormal exists in this area, right? It was coined by Lauren Coleman uh, in the 70s and it was in um, Serious America in 1983. And people have been doing it and it kind of laid dormant, like in terms of people talking about it. But I kept being drawn back to this place time and time again, not knowing that it had a name, not knowing that it was called the Bridgewater Triangle, just getting so many people with stories and people who wanted me to check this place out and that place out. And I landed on the, uh, I landed on the Freetown uh, State Forest, which if people know Lizzie Borden, Mm-hmm. Uh, Lizzie Borden is from um, uh, Fall River. Fall River used to be part of Freetown. So it's that area of Massachusetts. And as I'm looking into all of these different cases of ghosts and zombies and winged creatures and little troll type creatures, which I'm not sure if, if you know about called Puckwudgies. I, I heard you were a, you were a Puckwudgie guy. That's, that's exciting. Don't idea, yes. Um, so all these weird things were happening paranormally there. Mm-hmm. But then also there were um, uh, crimes that were being committed, right? And the detective that I talked to said, well, it makes sense because you can be in Boston, Massachusetts, Providence, Rhode Island, Brockton, Massachusetts, um, places in Rhode Island, um, that, places that have high crime. And then you can be in the middle of nowhere in, uh, in the Freetown State Forest in an hour. And so it makes sense that you would commit a crime somewhere else and then dump the body in the Freetown State Forest. And so I started really looking at the area and noticing that there was a higher rate of divorce. There was a higher rate of mental health disorder. The entire Bridgewater Triangle mm-hmm. has these things like the, the, the Bridgewater State um, uh, Hospital, which is a, a psychiatric hospital, has like five times more suicides in that mental health facility than anywhere else in the country, anywhere else. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And so I rolled, started to roll this idea around in my head of, is there, is there a, a connection between paranormal supernatural activity and really crime, right? And, yeah. and mental health disorder. And, and can the same juice that causes a ghost also impact your marriage, right? And can those things, and so when I wrote Dark Woods, I was, it was really asking that question. Right. This idea of can some place be so cursed, for lack of a better word, or so damaged that it not only brings out the paranormal and the supernatural, but it also brings out the worst parts of your personality. And more importantly, does it draw other dark things to it? So you can ask a question. If you want. Uh, well- <laughs> Well, I am. I am I, going towards the answer to your original. No, question, no, I, I'm. I'm <laughs> loving this. I, because I'm having questions as we're going through. I'm like, oh no, I want to ask them that. Oh, I'm. A, I'm gonna lose it. What? What have you thought about? What actually causes 
a, a specific small area like that to be so uh, active or cursed, you know, like you said. You know, it, it's, I think it's one of the, well, the folklorist in me wants to say, once you start talking about a place having that reputation, then you notice every little thing that happens there and it becomes yeah. part of the larger picture. Okay. One of the things that draws people to the Bridgewater Triangle, and the same can be held for the Ocala, is that regardless of how you think of the paranormal, you're going to find your answer there. So if you think violence and, 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 and blood and, and, and catastrophe causes the paranormal, you've got that in the Bridgewater Triangle because it's the site of the bloodiest war in American history. If you're a person who believes in stone tape theory and you've got this whole idea that you, you know, uh, the the elements around you trap things. Mm-hmm. It's there in the it's there in the Bridgewater Triangle. If you believe in ley lines, and if you believe in the power of running water, everything that you, every perspective or approach you might have to your belief system in the paranormal is there. So it really some of these places are convergence of all of those kinds of elements. And every time in places like this that you think that you've discovered something all of a sudden what you've discovered just becomes another piece of evidence and not the answer. Okay. If that okay. makes sense. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you say, okay, well, a lot of people for the Bridgewater triangle say the King Phillips war um, was the start of everything, right? Mm-hmm. The King Phillips war, which is, was absolutely horrific uh, conflict between essentially, you know, Plymouth colony and the Wampanoag native Americans, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, you know, absolutely horrible war crimes were committed on both sides. That's what started the, that's what started the activity of the Bridgewater Triangle. And I take a step back and I say, no, that's a symptom of it, right? That is this that war should have never taken place. And, and what more? We can look back on history and say settlers and colonists are, were horrible people, mm-hmm. but they were English. I'm from Florida. I'm not from Florida. Ooh, ooh, almost said that <laughs> wrong way. I live in Florida. Florida is Spanish land. It's Spanish conquering territory. Like the Spanish came in and wiped places out. The British came in and made friends with you and then stabbed you in the back to yeah, get your name, right? Yeah. So the, the amount of violence that was in the King Philip's War is not the British way. It was not the way the British took over places. And therefore, why would they all of a sudden resort to those things? Because they were in this Bridgewater Triangle. So ultimately the answer becomes... There are these places where all the all of these elements seem to come together mm-hmm. and maybe create some kind of vortex or some kind of portal that that allows things and acts as kind of a magnetive and spiritual center for things, and then just bad stuff finds its way there. Okay, so you would say that places like this that that just have that congregated inner energetic focus. They're, they're special as compared to like, you don't think just everywhere is haunted and just undiscovered yet. Like it's, it's specific locations. Yeah. Okay. I think, well, I, yeah, I think every, I think every place is haunted, mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, I think that there are places where it's more intense and there are places where it's more, um, it's more uh, uh, potent. Right. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes, cause now keep in mind, I'm a folklore. So I deal with backstory, right. And have backstory develop what we're seeing or what we're thinking. And so in the Bridgewater Triangle, you know, the, the classic ghost situation, right? Like two guys are, uh, two guys are um, at a bar and they get angry with each other. And one of them shoots the other one. 
Um, and then everyone pulls that guy out and hangs him out, hangs him outside. And if you go to that bar, you can hear a gunshot and smell the smoke from the gun. And if you go out, in other words, there's a story behind it, right? There's like mm-hmm. something going on. Bridgewater triangle stories and, and places like this oftentimes don't have a backstory, right? Yeah. It's two people who have been best friends their whole lives and lived together for 20 years, move into an area of the Bridgewater Triangle and with six months, they're trying to kill each other while they're also seeing ghosts, right? Like, in other words, it's an unexplained within the unexplained. There are other things happening other than just you see a ghost or there's a UFO in the sky. There seems to be a negativity to it inherently, but then also you, in looking for why it might be, you're often left with more questions and answers. Yeah. And, and like you were saying, you know, you, and you can tell them, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, you know, there's, a, yeah. there's debate over what is the triangle since Coleman came up with his original one. Um, people say, well, how about this place? How about this? Well, what about this town? It's right outside the triangle. It's like, yeah, but if you look at the activity there, it doesn't fit this weirdness of the Bridgewater triangle and, and the yeah. same with the Ocala. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's hard going through the book, uh, not uh and and not really start to believe that something massive is yeah. is going on in that area and, and like I, um i was saying like you know you felt that creepy that you know it was the creepiest place you'd ever been you know up in the bridgewater triangle before you even knew it was something right. you know yeah yeah, yeah. okay yeah, and so as i so I, one of the first places like so i i got back in the biz i guess mm-hmm. and my goal was to i wanted to find the legends and the ghost story in t- small towns in Florida that no one was talking about, right? Like I didn't want to do the big places that everyone knows. I want to know the small little town, you know, outside of Sarasota, what, what's the story that they tell, right? Yeah. Um, and so I emailed that because coming, you know, being a former librarian and just kind of knowing the power of that and, and having spent a lot of time in the circular files of libraries in Massachusetts, pulling out random stories that are just kept because they're cool, uh, you know, pre-digital age. I contacted librarians and almost immediately, I got almost no responses, but almost immediately like within an hour, the, the library at Astor emailed me back and said, we've got great stories. Would you like to come speak at our library? Like they didn't know me. They didn't know anything about me or anything like that. They were just automatically, they wanted me to come there and they wanted me to do a, a presentation in front of the people. And I'm like, I've never had that kind of response before. This place is weird. Mm. We went there and almost immediately, and you, it's un, you don't find this about many places, right? We were there at like 11 o'clock in the morning, bright and, sun, bright and sunny, and yet every picture we took came out dark. We could not get a good picture. We're talking to each other. We're maybe two feet away from each other, and our voices are echoing. And I started to say, you know, this is really weird. Like there seems to be something impacting the waves here, Mm -hmm. right? And impacting the way that sound, the way that light is traveling through. Like this, this, this place is is really weird. And as I'm listening to the stories of these people, I went there, I had like the five stories I was going to tell. They spent an hour and a half telling me the stories just in that small little town. And they were finishing each other's sentences and all of them had a general consensus that this place has a lot of ghosts. Let us tell you about them because we share them amongst each other and, and they're, they're, they're really, really well known. Yeah. 
as I started to do more research in the other towns, and this is right on the edge of the Ocala, technically in the Ocala, I started to, to, to get this impression that A, it had all the elements of Freetown. It had uh, a whole bunch of really weird uh, paranormal, uh, paranormal stories and, and supernatural stories and supernatural creatures and things like that. Had a high, we call it down here, skunk ape, a high skunk ape uh, uh, story, you know what I'm saying? Like a lot is of that, stories. Is about that Sasquatch? Is that yeah, yeah, okay. Bigfoot okay. Sasquatch. There had, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and, and this is what really drew me in and started to make me notice. It had a lot of unexplained crimes attached to it. And then it had uh, a high rumor level, which I discovered not to be a rumor, of cult activity. Like, in Ooh. other words, people who were working. Um, you know, cults, but then also people who were working with all levels of witchcraft and things that involve energy and intention yeah. were finding their way into this forest. And so I'm like, jokingly, I think within the next week after that event, I was like, dude, we're looking at Dark Woods Part 2. Like, this is like, I'm going to write a book called Dark Woods Part 2. Worst name ever, right? <laughs> um, and then the more I looked into it, the more I noticed that like, wait a minute, this isn't a joke. Like, this place is like Freetown amped up and larger. And I started to notice that time and time again, just watching the news, every, every uh, horrific crime outside of, you know, the first three that you get that are from your, your local area, the Ocala or a town within the Ocala was being mentioned. Um, and I started to just make these same connections. And at the same time, I'm once again, like the Bridgewater Triangle, getting tons of people reporting, hey, have you heard this legend? Have you heard this legend? Have you heard this story yeah. from the Ocala? And I'm like, this is one of those places where things are converging. Hello, my name is Jordan Klein, and I am the host of Fireside Paranormal Podcast. If you're into ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, the unknown, then pull up a chair and join me by the fire as we hear real stories from real people. Each episode, I interview paranormal investigators, authors, experts and legends in their field here at fireside paranormal podcast we have something for everyone if you're an experienced researcher or if you're just getting into it we have a spot for you we're found anywhere you listen to podcasts so grab your friends tune in and remember don't be afraid only believe Okay, so there were um, a couple of other topics in the book I, I kind of wanted to touch upon just to give people a little taster of what's in store for them when they pick up their own copy. Um, can you talk about the time slips that are occurring? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is one of, uh, and you can't talk about the time slips without talking about what I call the shift. And the more stories that I was getting, not folklore, but more of people's real experiences. Um, and just telling me about the forest. One of the things that I noticed was that in the Ocala and a lot of the towns surrounding it, because this is not just about the forest, it's about the small towns that, that kind of, I'd say, living in the shadow of the Ocala. One of the things that they reported would be that things would disappear. And so, for example, in the, in the book, I tell of one girl who had a cemetery in the, in the woods behind her yard but it wasn't always there. So sometimes she would go out and she would be able to see the headstones and she would you know, do something and, and sometimes she had scary experiences there and then she would go back and, and we're talking only 100 yards into the woods 
there would be no headstones in the woods. Um, or hunters famously would go into the Ocala and they would mark off. Maybe they put, you know, a, a hunting stand there, or maybe they just saw something, right? And they still, the hunters share this kind of information with people. They mark it on their GPS. They go there and then boom, it's not there anymore. And then two weeks later, it is there. So the geography, both natural and unnatural of the forest is never stable. Things are constantly shifting. People will say it, cemeteries are, are famous for this in the Ocala. A headstone, it's in one place and then it's not there the next time you go to show your friend that you found it. And then it's there at some other point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and along with that, and this led to the kind of like the, this whole portal vortex kind of explanation of, of what's going on there. The thing that the, like it redefines itself all the time and people never feel comfortable there because regardless of how long they've been doing it, they, how long they've been taking their, their, their four wheelers mudding, as we say here in Florida out there, they're not sure what they're gonna come across geographically anytime they go out. And along with this, people were reporting time slips to me in terms of uh, they would be out driving, right? Or they would go out for a walk and they would go on a path that they've known for a very long time. They would come home and what had taken them an hour, uh, by the time they get out of the forest, like four hours have passed and there's no way for them to account for their time whatsoever. Oh my God. They would, um, you know, the, the, I have a, one of the stories is about, you know, a, a bunker that someone uh, that's kind of like a, a, an infamous, I guess you could say, spot within the Ocala now. The person went in, they had their experience, and multiple people told me this about this bunker. They went in, and it's right off the road. You can see it. If you know what you're looking for, it's right off the road. They went to the bunker, they came back to their car, and all of a sudden, when they left the wooded area, it was now dark. And they were like, well, where did the time go? Like, what's what's going on here? And so people going into the Ocala, living there, right? Like, this is a, unlike a lot of places in Florida, which are very transient, people have lived in for generations in these smaller towns around the Ocala. Um, and they experience just a loss of time uh, that they can't account for. And they're kind of used to it. It's almost, uh, I talked about Aster. Aster has what they call Aster time because they never know when things are really going to happen or, or how people are, people lose time there so quickly that they just have a very casual relationship to time. So something that's supposed to start at two, it might start at three, it might start at 3.30, it might start mm-hmm. at 2.45, it all depends because they're so used to losing time that they just account for it in their daily lives. Yeah. Oh man. I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the bunker back to yeah. that because I really wanted to, it was one of my favorite parts of the book. Uh, yeah. the, the dark man at the bunker yeah. there, uh, you, you relate a couple of stories specifically <laughs> about those encounters. The one, it was the last story that you told the, the, the woman's experience with it. Uh, it, it I was reading it and, it literally sucked the air out of the room. It's like, oh, <laughs> I don't want to give it away. But you're talking about shadow figures, right? This is a shadow, fi- more specifically, the hat man. Yeah, there, there are a lot of reports of shadow men um, in the Ocala. And then there are shadow men with hats, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you and I are talking and you're telling me something that happened to you, that's an experience you had, and probably a lot of your listeners, right? They to, to say something like uh, shadow man with a hat, we all go, mm-hmm, yep, I got it. Uh-huh. 
if you're talking to someone from Mount Dora who is uh, 67 years old and telling you a story about something that happened and they say it was this dark figure and it wasn't quite solid, but it looked solid and it was wearing a hat. They're not fans uh, of either of our work, no offense, right? They're people who are conveying something without a filter, right? So you and I, when we experience the paranormal, if we experience it, we experience it with one of the filters we've learned and automatically our mind starts clicking and maybe even influencing what we see. Yeah. These people who are reporting these dark figures are the kind that experience it and then go looking for someone to help them explain it. And so they don't know that this is the cool thing in the paranormal, right? They don't know that this is a trend or that it's a thing. Mm-hmm. And so when they're reporting it, they're telling me about it genuinely. Like they're not with, with no kind of preconceived notion of what that might be. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And it, it, we, we also like to categorize things so much out here when we think we know so much and that's, uh, you really relayed there just, you know, genuine, like I experienced this thing. This is how, what happened. This is what it looked like. You, you really do a a very good job. Cause I don't think you said, (laughs) you know, hat man, (laughs) hat man once in that chapter, it was just what was told to you. Um, and I, I have to uh, bust you a little bit. You said you're going to correct me. I've been saying Ocala. It's Ocala. I mispronounced it. I don't think you have to worry about how it's pronounced because people <laughs> here in Florida pronounce things weird. Um, in, in my in my other book, uh, my other Florida book, which is called Haunted Florida Love Stories. So mm-hmm. it's more it's more about the entire state. I talk about Florida, Florida, which is the worst town name ever right it's literally just they took florida and they took the f off of it because yeah. they couldn't figure out what to name themselves and i i've been talking about Florida, florida and then finally someone says you know it's Loretta, florida right and someone else was like it's Loretta, florida and i'm like dude what whatever so it, it's it's i think it's it's a it's the weird unusual we'll say not weird a Florida accent thing. Mm. And the fact that it's oftentimes, depending on where you are in Florida, it's been settled by people from certain areas. And so it's Florida mixed with upstate New York, or it's Florida mixed with uh, Wisconsin. And so you have this kind of weird way that people pronounce it. So you can pronounce it any way you want. As long (laughs) as you spell it right when you're online trying to order the book. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, Another topic was, oh, Florida banshees. Now, I I don't know much about the banshee, but from the okay. little that I do know, I I thought the banshee was primarily like Irish folklore. Is is there a large Irish immigrant population? No, no not at all. No, um, I think it's more of it's something that exists in most cultures. Oh, okay. Um, but we fall back on the term banshee because it's the easiest to explain what we're actually trying to say. Whereas when people tell me the stories, they just explain what's going on and maybe they fall back on Banshee, the term Banshee. Um, But it's, you know, it's the, are you talking about the coyote woman? Is that the story you're talking about? Yeah. 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 So so the coyote woman um, sounds more like if you imagine a coyote howling and a woman screaming underneath it. Um, or crying and like wailing underneath it, the two, those two sounds mixed. Um, And so when people like, because of the nature of the coyote woman, uh, she's out there stalking the woods, looking for people who have done wrong. She's looking for bad people. And so she has 
thematically and folklorically, if I can make up a word, the same kind of draw you in siren aspect that a banshee would have. And so you take that along with the wailing screaming thing and you have like, oh yeah, she's out there in the woods and she's out there in the woods. She's out there in the woods. It's much more of like a banshee. So it's, I think it's us trying to understand what's going on mm-hmm. more than it is the people of those towns necessarily calling it a banshee. Um, although they, you know, that's a term that some people did use for some of these things. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, there was, uh, those were a couple of my favorite uh, stories was the one, you know, the one about the coyote woman. Actually, wait, there's the coyote woman right there, back right behind me. Oh, no kidding. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's I'm not allowed, I wasn't allowed to use that picture in the book because it's <laughs> my picture, but that's my coyote woman. Oh no. My dinner table. Yeah. <laughs> At your dinner table. At my dinner table. Well, like along with her story, you know, like like the kinds of stories, paranormal stories that are like about revenge and, and like retribution a little bit, you know, it's kind of yeah. like they're providing a service a, a bit because there is another um I, I don't know what to call it Fan- phantom cr- cryptid creature something like yeah. that called the undefinable stakini the stakini yeah yes what is yeah. the stakini yeah it's funny i was with my kids uh last night and we were watching a show called unexplained um and uh they were the the wendigo came on right or the windigo talking mm-hmm. about pronunciations and my son of all people was like is that really a cryptid though, dad? Like I wouldn't classify that as the same. And it's like, you know, a little tear like kind of ran down my eye because I was like, oh, my son knows the difference between a cryptid and like an <laughs> elemental or something, right? Um, uh, and and the there are some things which defy those. They defy an easy category because something like the stakini um, are not like anything else, right? Like they're... I always say there is if like you just took things that creep you out and threw them in a blender, right? They are seminal witch vampire owl hybrids, right? I mean, and so this is like, I mean, if you imagine that anything that might scare you, anything that might be under your bed, or in this case in the woods mm-hmm. that might freak you out, you're going to find in them. They are a, a coven of women who, uh, of seminal women who were medicine women, so they were witches. And over time, each of them had been in their own way scorned by the man that they love. Mm -hmm. And so they called upon she who walks the circle, um, who is this almost God-like character in in seminal folklore. And they said, give us the power to get revenge on those who have hurt us. And so individually, she gives each of them the power in a very low-key devil kind of way knowing that they're they will be tempted by that amount of power and abuse it right yeah and so after they all get revenge on the different men who have scorned them they don't give the power back instead they start to like well you know what my ex-boyfriend did something to me too so i'm gonna go after him and i'm gonna do something to him and this vengeance best thing you know i'm a huge fan of buffy this vengeance demon power that they were given slowly started to take their humanity away. And so they lost being women. They lost being humans. And instead they became these owl vampires who had to live off the blood and entrails of human men. And so by day they could appear very beautiful and very alluring. 
and get people to kind of come deeper in the woods to follow them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they would kill them, drink their blood, gut them, boil their entrails for soup. Um, And, and they, these women found each other and they formed a coven and they're out there in the Ocala um, waiting for men, you know, and waiting for their next victim. And the crazy thing is the most famous story attached to them is like a historical certainty, right? Uh Like there's this, uh, the start of the second Seminole war, which is really, it's a really important war in terms of American history because it kind of uh, slingshots us to the civil war. But essentially uh, Florida was trying to move the, the Seminole tribe out to Oklahoma, get them out of Florida, relocate them onto reservations in Oklahoma. And there were some Seminoles who were okay with this and they signed off on it, not necessarily speaking for the tribe because the nation wasn't unified like that. And so they, they, a lot of tension was rising between them. And there was this one place, it was kind of like, kind of like a, a Seminole visitor center, right? Like it was the place where if I was a Seminole and you were a settler, you were a Floridian, we would go to this place and it was almost like a court, right? And they would like, they would hash it out so that things didn't escalate. Mm-hmm. Well, as this relocation is happening, they become the target. They become a symbol of growing tension between these two, these two forces. And so they're like, we've got to reinforce this base that's right across the street from it because bad stuff is going to happen. War is going to break out. And that's the first place they're going to attack. And so they send 110 men up to, uh, up to, to reinforce this place called Fort King, which is Fort King is in the actual town of Ocala. And along the way, there's all these things that are going wrong and there's bridges that are out and, and they keep getting like, which they didn't know that the, the Osceola, who is kind of the leader of the Seminoles at this time, was intentionally like doing things to derail them and to take it longer for them to get there. And then at one point they get attacked and uh, essentially the Americans get wiped out, right? Of the 110 that set out, only three survived the initial attack and only two made it back to bases. Um, and very few Seminoles died. And so this is a huge victory in Seminole history. This was like them saying, you can't, we're not going to just stand here. You can't just push us out. We're going to fight back. Mm-hmm. And yet there's a Seminole legend that says no Seminoles were responsible. It's known as the Dade Massacre. No Seminoles were responsible for the Dade Massacre. Those soldiers, those 110 soldiers who were making their way to Fort King were picked off one by one by the Stikini. And every single night when people went to bed, they didn't know who was going to wake up and who was going to make it to the end of the road because the Stikini would come every night and they would take a few of them. And during day, they would lure a few of them into the woods by these beautiful women that the men could not seem to get over. And so this historically written, there are written documentation of all this happening and it should be a success for the Seminoles. And yet, instead, they've also got this, this paranormal supernatural legend that explains how all those people die. And so it's a really interesting case that those two things should live with each other. Yeah, yeah. What, what a legend. How you keep all of this stuff <laughs> straight <laughs> in your head. Let me borrow your brain. Oh, my gosh. You trust me. You don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I told you before we started recording, I'm going to have some random questions for you here near okay. the end. I got some for you ready. Let me just pull the notes. Do I need a buzzer for this or no? 
<laughs> you can just vocalize. Yeah, no. Okay. And you're is, good. This a, is this a quick shot? Like answer in less than it's, a minute. <laughs> you know, take your time answering because I, I like your I like your your ways, man. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but yeah, it's it's you know traditionally called the speed round. But you know what? Uh, just feel free. Feel free. Yeah, Whatever I'm comes slow, to you. So all right, got it. <laughs> all right. So number one. What is a mainstream paranormal figure or character that you have considered could be a tulpa that isn't generally thought of in that way? Um, uh, uh, Jeepers Creepers. <laughs> so nice. to, hit back, to hit back into the book, um, mm -hmm. because Jeepers Creepers is now seen at the location where they shot the movie Jeepers Creepers in the Ocala. Um, so this is a 100% it's a case of, of people continuously going there, trying to look for him and seeing him. I mean, it's got all these other hauntings that are, that are at the same location, but specifically see now seeing the Jeepers Creepers figure there, I think has a lot to do with the movie. Okay. Okay. Does that count? Is that main, is that too mainstream? Oh, uh, no, absolutely. No, that's, that's <laughs> perfect. Perfect. All right. Okay. Um, how often do you think fear plays a part in the paranormal experiences that people are having? I think it, 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 it's, I'm going to say a 50-50 split. Um, and by play the part, by, or do you mean it, it, it influences, like the fact that they're scared changes the experience for them? Yeah, um, yeah, because I think sometimes... Uh, uh, and I've talked about this on the show too, is that the fear in itself, like, like that quote, um, men, men who fear demons, see them everywhere. Like that yeah. kind of thing. It can be taken both metaphorically and literally too. Like yeah. sometimes we create these things for ourselves. Um, well, I think that, I think that 50% of the paranormal experiences that I hear about, I would say involve some level of fear. Now there was a study out of UCLA or USC, and we're talking like 15 years ago, that talked about the impact of adrenaline on memory, uh, which is very, if you think about it, it's a, it, I mean, it's, it's defines evolution, right? Like yeah. the more that you learn to fear something, the safer you'll be to pass on your genes to the next generation blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so memory is actually solidified and, and, and not, um, and not negatively impacted, but positively impacted by fear, which releases adrenaline because you need to know to not go to that part of the jungle again, or else the tiger is going to eat you. Um, and so I would actually say that while fear um, is a, uh, while fear is, is something that exists in like 50% of the cases that I, that people tell me about, I think it's a good thing. Um, but I, the other 50%, which is probably even more of what I deal with as a folklorist and a legend tripper is either stories that people are telling about things that happened long ago to people who weren't them, like word of mouth kind of stories, mm -hmm. or there are things that you didn't realize uh, were paranormal until after they happened. And so you don't have time to be scared because you're too busy wondering was that someone, was that just a woman on the side of the road? And so you don't have time to be scared until afterwards when you think about it and you start to process and you go like, that woman just disappeared. I know that I just experienced that. Yeah. Which is uh, more of the creep factor than the fear factor. But I think that those two kinds of stories like share space with each other. Oh yeah. And that's, a, that's a good point. Sometimes these things just happen, whether, it's, you know, yeah. It's that having the conversation with mm -hmm. your father, um, where he finally tells you that he loves you 
And then you get the phone call that he's dead. Oh, um, and you're yeah. like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? He just came in the house, like, and you go upstairs and he's not there. And you realize you just had an experience as opposed to being scared of your dad in the first place, which if you are, then that's sounds like a personal issue. Oh, this is the stuff, the thoughts that keep me going. <laughs> okay, um, next question. This is playing off of, um, I just listened to the Candyman episode yeah. you did. What, yeah. are your, what are your top three horror films? Top three horror films of all time. Wow. And they've got to be horror films. They can't be ghost. They, they can be, yeah, scary. Scary yeah. films. Yeah. Um, scary. Okay. Uh, number one is Poltergeist. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't compete. Like, it's Poltergeist and everything else for me. Classic. Um, um, I would say, I would say the original Candyman is up there. Yeah. Um, because that that movie just uh, just terrifies me beyond what the special effects do to me emotionally. And then probably the the scariest, I would say, not ghosty, demony or whatever, is The Strangers. Um, the oh. idea of people just outside your house who have randomly picked you mm-hmm. and um, that's the stuff that that's that scares the that's that's the stuff that really gets to me because um we've mythologized some of these people in some of these cases but there's still so much of them that are real yeah that you just have to understand that the reason why we mythologize them is because we're scared as crap and so we have to retell the stories uh and make up little things about them because we can't understand the mindset of someone like yeah oh Never and and I can't watch it all together. I got to watch it in bits and pieces. <laughs> Und, under your blanket with your head covered. No, under no, my no. blanket, and then make sure I have my dog because my dog's going to do something to protect me in that circumstance. <laughs> okay. My little mutt. Oh, all right. Well, uh, I'll just have one more question for you because I, I I can't let you go without asking you. You are the yeah. expert. What is your favorite urban legend and why? My favorite urban legend, mm-hmm. um, my favorite, okay, so I have two answers. You got to, my favorite urban legend um, in terms of, of something spooky is, is definitely Bloody Mary. And uh, if we, other than, Bloody Mary or Ghost Hitchhikers, but Ghost Hitchhikers, I think, go beyond urban legend. Like, I think they're, they're a subset of haunting that are more genuine and, and like there's stuff going on there. But the idea of, um, I, it's funny, I posted that I had done the Candyman episode, that a Candyman episode was up. I had paranormal investigators telling me they refused to do Bloody Mary. They refused to do Candyman. They refused to do anything with mirrors like, I'll go into the Waverly, you know, Waverly Hills in my underwear. Yeah. But I'm not going to, but I don't even ask me to look at a mirror and say the name of the ghost that we're looking for, right? <laughs> like the idea of looking into a mirror and conjuring something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do this every year. I'm a, I'm a high school teacher and I talk to these kids and I'm blah, blah, blah. And I say, oh, so you're not scared of Bloody Mary. And this is how we get the different variations of it. Um, I'm like, all right, go. Hey, do you want to you go to the bathroom? Here you go. Don't even have to write a pass. Go to the bathroom, take your phone, go do Bloody Mary in the mirror right now. It's not even midnight or 3 a.m. as they like to do. Do it. Mm-hmm. And I'll have the toughest kids and the, they won't do it. Uh, and so the hole that that story has and the kind of permeations and the repetition of saying the name a certain amount of times, that's everything that, that makes me smile as a folklorist and as a ghostly folklorist. Um, my favorite non, uh, my favorite non ghost um, urban legend is about the autistic penguin. What? Which is the story. I, I know, uh, which is the story of a woman who goes to, 
whatever, insert name of local aquarium, right? And she takes her autistic son and she loses him for about 10 minutes. And finally she finds him and, you know, she's all mad. And so she, she immediately goes home and she makes him go into his room. And, and, and then she, she notices like she can't really hear noise up there and she goes and um, there's this splashing, right? He's in the bathtub. There's some splashing going on. She opens the door and there he is on the floor playing with a penguin in the bathtub. And what he had done is during those 10 minutes, he had jumped over the penguin enclosure, swam over and kidnapped a penguin. Nothing about this story makes sense whatsoever, <laughs> right? Yeah. And yet, and this is why it's my favorite urban legend, even more than any ghostly ones. If you called, I was living in Boston the first time I heard this story. If you call major aquariums, especially when this was making the rounds, and you said, hey, I have a weird question for you. They'll say there are no penguins that were taken by autistic. Like you don't even have to ask the question. They automatically give you the answer. Houston, Boston, New York, Tampa, uh, someplace uh, 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 in Nebraska, someplace in, in um, um, I think it was Arizona. They all had to hold press conferences telling people that autistic kids were not kidnapping <laughs> their things from their displays. Like, it's the kind of urban legend um, that had the huge impact and social impact of no other urban legend except for maybe like the clown crazies that go through, right? Like it, a clown, not clown, the clown crazies that go through. Like yeah, yeah. this was a story that makes no sense whatsoever that was so big, major institutions had to like formally denounce that it had ever happened. That is That's crazy. pretty crazy. Cool. It's cool, but it's so crazy that it had yeah, such yeah, yeah. a hold on people's. I, I, I don't know that it, that it was so profound, profound yeah. enough. For, <laughs> and it was in so cool. and it was in dozens of cities. Yeah. And what, and the other thing is, if you are a folklorist and you follow it, it came out uh, and it came out really big in the '90s, in the early '90s, and then kind of lost favor. Mm -hmm. But then it had a huge spike right after the release of March of the Penguins. <laughs> and so that's kind of when I, I got it on the second time around after March of the Penguins. And so you, you can see these things if you watch and you know what to look for. You yeah. can see a movie comes out or something comes out and then all of a sudden some of these urban legends, whether they're ghostly urban legends or just food urban legends, they come back up to the surface and, and that's what kind of makes them exist forever. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Chris, uh, this has been such a blast today talking with you. Um, you're a phenomenal dude. Uh, why don't you let everybody know where they can connect with you, where you prefer they connect with you, and also where they can pick up Haunted Ocala National Forest and all your other books. Um, you can get those uh, on Amazon or wherever you get your books, or you can go direct to the website. If for some bizarre reason you want a signed copy uh, of one, you can go to uh, trippingonlegends.com. Tripping on Legends is the name of my podcast as well. So wherever you get your podcast, you can uh, you can look up uh, Tripping on Legends. And then probably the best way to keep in touch is either the Instagram, which is uh, Spooky Tripping, is the uh, the Instagram account, and then Facebook.com backslash Tripping on Legends. That's the easiest way to get in touch with me. Awesome. And and everybody listening, do go check out his website, trippingonlegends.com. Um, it is a uh, massive resource of stuff. I, I was uh, farting around on there for a couple hours last night, just like, whoa, <laughs> just it's, a really it, great resource. 
It's coming from having been really influential in Massachusetts and no one caring about me in Florida. Um, it was interesting that someone was looking up something I had talked about and they said, oh my word, the first thing that popped up was you. And I was like, yes, <laughs> first page results. So uh, you, you made it, it you finally it's made it. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> so. All right, and uh, before we close it out, do you have any final thoughts, words of wisdom, advice you would like to leave with everyone? Um, the best advice I always have for anyone who's into the paranormal is uh, don't lose your awe, right? Like never investigate so much or uh, uh, read stories so much or watch horror movies so much that you don't get creeped out by them. Like that's the word. That's like kids realizing there is no tooth fairy or, uh, or Santa Claus, right? Like always try to keep like that idea of like, this is some creepy stuff. And not be like, but I've done that. Like, no, it's creepy. Embrace it. So that's the, the best advice I can always give for everybody. That's awesome. Thank you so much again, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you again to Chris Balzato for joining me and sharing his knowledge and time and obvious passion for what he does. I recommend picking up a copy of Haunted Ocala National Forest. It's bomb dudes but check out his other books as well he's been doing this for some time and uh has written a few books along the way maybe more than just a few links are included in the show notes folks nocturnal frequency radio has invited me to help them ring in their season 15 premiere in just a few weeks september 11th we will be live streaming on their youtube channel if you're not already subscribed why not if you haven't already added this event to your calendar why not? No, but seriously, Steve and Alex have an excellent show. Obviously, if you're going into your 15th season, I mean, 15 seasons. Can you imagine? They stream regularly. Their guests are always a lot of fun and so interesting. And the chat that goes along with every episode is almost an entire show in itself. Steve and Alex, y'all have some awesome listeners over there. I've really been enjoying catching up on uh, older episodes and getting to know some of your regulars. Really looking forward to joining you all. I was uh, there recently actually watching and listening to their live stream of a tribute show for one of their friends who unfortunately passed away from COVID about a year ago. And I'm just so sorry that I never got to meet him. Um, it was a really touching, heartfelt, at times funny, but all in all, genuine remembrance of someone who was obviously a really great person and someone who is sorely missed by a lot of people. Reeves Cook from the Paratalk podcast was on there along with a few others. I was there from the start, not sure if you saw me, but really appreciate the shout out later in the show. That was so unexpected. You guys are too much. I actually had switched over to my personal YouTube account just in case I was going to comment. I, I didn't want to seem you know, self-promotional on a tribute show, but I was there, you guys. I have hit a wall with my astral projection aspirations. I hate to admit it. Nothing is happening with my new technique of just trying to relax myself into it at bedtime. I am falling asleep pretty quickly. I mean, that is happening, but uh, no out-of-body travels as of yet gotta be honest, I'm starting to doubt that I can do this. Maybe certain people just 
can't, you know? I, I don't know. Maybe uh, I, I might have to go back to the WBTB method and just deal with my midnight saunterings. Oh, you know what else might be affecting my inability so far, though? I, I've been having real difficulty trying to find time to do regular meditation. It's been spotty. <laughs> There's been a lot going on. Hate that excuse, but that is just my reality right now. Think that is it for updates and such. Um, do you all believe in law of attraction? Putting positive vibes out into the universe and having it reflected back onto you? One of the most positive and powerful manifestation techniques, and I just heard about this, so I wanted to share, is by rating and reviewing the show, you guys. I I really want you guys to have all of the good things in your life. So, you know, just put that positivity out there and watch the universe work its magic on your own life. That is going to do it for today. Until next time, stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open.